thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ben Vausler. Hi, Ben. Hello. Now, coming up this week, seeing individual atoms, how scientists have developed an imaging technique to enable them to see some of the smallest things in the universe. Now, it's not George Bush's brain, it's a hydrogen atom. Also, how a facial infectious cancer is wiping out Tasmanian devils, that's down in Australia, but it's also making them breed at a much younger age, and we'll be finding out why. And also, where do jellyfish go? And what do they do? We'll be talking to the man who's tagging them to find out. That's all on the way. Ben. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're looking at the science of drug discovery to find out how new drugs are developed and tested right through from test tube to patient. But will new techniques be able to save us from the superbugs of today and tomorrow? That's all on the way. And we'll also be solving an age-old mystery in Question of the Week. Hi, it's Jeff Blackwell calling in from Bundaberg in Queensland in Australia for Question of the Week. I'd like to know if there are any life forms plant, animal, fungus, whatever, that are effectively immortal. So what is the longest living thing on the planet? And I'll tell, you to, I'll tell you for free, it's not someone listening to a James Blunt song, although that can feel like an incredibly long time, if not a lifetime. Now, if you've got any questions for the show or you just want to say hi, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Now this week, a team of scientists who are based at the University of California at Berkeley, and this is Janik Meyer and his colleagues, have published a paper in Nature in which they have managed to spot some of the smallest things in the universe, including atoms of hydrogen. Now, although we've been able to see atoms in the past using an electron microscope, one of the big problems with imaging is that something as small as an atom is pretty hard to keep in one place whilst you look at it. So what have these guys done? Well, they've solved the problem using an electron microscope, and you need an electron microscope because electrons are very, very tiny, which means they have the capacity to see very, very small things. And because they're smaller than atoms, that's why they can see atoms. But the key to the breakthrough was a chemical called graphene. And this is a a honeycomb-shaped lattice of carbon atoms, which is a single layer, one atom thick, of graphite. Graphite is made of lots of these graphene sheets stacked up on top of each other. And what the team did was to image this under the electron microscope and then drop atoms of things like carbon onto this. And this is very good for a number of reasons. One, because the atoms are organised in such a regular honeycomb shape, it's very easy to subtract their appearance from the ultimate picture so that you leave behind just the atoms you've added. Second, graphene is very, very robust. It's very strong, so it can withstand being bombarded by by the electron beam from the microscope for a long period of time. And third, things stick to it. So when they stuck on some atoms, carbon atoms, or in this case also hydrogen atoms, they stayed put for a long enough period of time for the researchers to see them. What did they look like? Well, when they saw this, if, if you can imagine the inverse of the re- or the reverse of a, of a starlit night sky, so you've got a dark sky with white spots of light where the stars are, if you could reverse that so the stars were black and the sky was white, that's exactly what their pictures look like. Absolutely phenomenal. You can have a look at the pictures in this week's edition of Nature. And the real killer for me 
was when we were in chemistry classes at school, you'd draw molecules out like butane and hexane and things, and you'd draw wiggly lines for all the sort of hydrocarbon chains and things. And what they did was to drop some hydrocarbons onto their graphene layer and look at those, and they really do look like those diagrams, those wiggly lines you used to draw when you are at school in chemistry classes. So an amazing step forward and an opportunity now for us to begin to understand a lot more about how tiny atoms and even whole molecules appear how they change their structure and what their shapes are, basically, so we can get a whole new look at how molecules and, and atoms interact with each other. And ironic that something very similar to the pencil lead that we drew those atoms with all those years ago in a chemistry class is actually what they're now using to, to see them in real life. It is incredible, isn't it? It's excellent stuff. Well, also we have some research from Australia this week that shows that a disease affecting Tasmanian devils, this is called the, fa- the devil facial tumour disease, is actually having a very interesting effect on how the devils breed. Devil facial tumour disease is a fatal disease where, as the name suggests, the devils develop tumours on their faces. Now, most animals will die within six months of the tumours first appearing, and it's actually a very interesting disease. Uh, Anne-Marie Pierce reported in Nature in, I think, 2005, that it's a contagious cancer that seems to be transmitted when the devils bite each other or if they eat from the same source. In fact, in some cases, the genetic signature of the devil, the animal itself, was totally different from that of the tumour, and that shows that the tumour had not grown from the animal's own cells, like most of the cancers we know about, but it's actually more like an infectious organ transplant. A cancer cell from an infected animal got into another animal's facial tissue and started to grow. So how are the devils responding to the disease? Well, in a paper in this week's PNAS, Mena Jones and colleagues from the University of Tasmania studied populations of devils from five sites around Tasmania and noticed that where the disease was present, the females would breed much earlier. Now, before the disease arrived, the animals lived an average of five to six years, they'd begin breeding at the age of two, and they'd raise several litters of offspring over their lifetime. But now, the animals breed just once, at less than a year old, and they may not even survive long enough to rear that litter. The reason for this precocious sexual maturity isn't known yet, but scientists suspect that it's a combination of factors, so things like there's less competition from other devils, there's a reduced population density, and there's much more plentiful food because there are fewer devils. But what it means to the devils is even more unclear, although it could prove to be their salvation if it leads to the emergence of animals that are resistant to the disease. Now, breeding earlier means a shorter gap between each generation, so there's more genetic combinations in the same amount of time. And since June 2005, three female devils have been found that do show partial resistance to the disease. But even with these shorter generations, the problem is there's very few devils left. In fact, numbers have fallen by nearly 90% since the disease first appeared. So this means that genetic diversity all across Tasmania is quite low, and that means there's very little for natural selection to pick on to find the resistant animals and to get the resistant animals to replace the population. Mena and colleagues are currently trying to keep some populations in quarantine to try and stop the disease from ever getting to them, but sadly they're not very optimistic, and they suggest that the animals may actually become extinct in the wild within just 25 years. Uh, They were saying that, they said this novel disease could have catastrophic consequences for the Tasmanian devil. It's the world's largest carnivorous marsupial. It's a very interesting animal. I did actually see some when I was driving around in Tasmania, including some that were affected by the disease, and they get this horrible kind of facial tumour that creeps across their face and basically eats their face away, which is why they, they basically 
don't survive because it stops them eating and it stops them breeding. They just die off. But let's hope that uh, either they can find a vaccine for it or that, again, nature provides an answer and that there are enough kind of genes left in the population to breed animals that are resistant. We have to hope so. These three resistant female devils are, are a very good sign. Let's hope that that trend continues. Thanks, Ben. Well, also this week, there's a very interesting study which has been done by scientists at the University of Cambridge into obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, we sometimes trivialise obsessive-compulsive disorder, and we often say scientists, including people like me, are are the worst culprits for having it um, because we tend to be so obsessive about the work that we do. Um, But what obsessive-compulsive disorder is, is a psychiatric condition. It's very common, in fact, between about 1% and 3% of the population get it. It tends to have equal numbers of men and women who are affected, but it tends to run in families. And what we know is that uh, in a family who has a person who has obsessive-compulsive disorder, if if you're in a first-degree relative, a nearest relative of those people, you have about an eight-fold higher chance of having it than the average person in the population. And when you have this condition, what happens is that you are troubled by obsessive thoughts. These are thoughts which keep coming into your mind. You can't get rid of them, and they could be things like you're worried about contamination, you think that you're covered in germs, or you're continuously worried that something horrible might happen to you. And this is distressing enough in itself, but then the other sort of half of the disease is that these obsessive thoughts lead you to carry out some kind of ritual that's the compulsion. You might, for instance, have to get dressed and undressed multiple times in the morning. You might have to spend 20 minutes washing your hands just to feel clean. You can't leave the house without having turned the lights on and off about 20 times. Now, this sounds a bit trivial, but the fact is that for people who suffer from this, it can take up hours of their day. It can be very distressing, and it can also make people get very depressed. And that can be actually the reason eventually why they seek help. So it would be much better if doctors had a way of diagnosing it sooner, working out who is at risk, and then potentially either preventing it from happening or intervening sooner because there are some drugs that can make the symptoms better and what we know about schizophrenia and other psychiatric conditions is that if you give drugs then and you give them early in the condition then you generally let the condition doesn't get so bad and so we think the same thing might apply with obsessive compulsive disorder if you intervene sooner it's easier to treat before it gets entrenched so sam chamberlain who's a researcher at Cambridge university has published a paper in science this week where they took 14 people who had obsessive compulsive disorder they took 12 of their nearest relatives and they also got 14 normal people as controls and they put them in the brain scanner and in when they're in the scanner they were shown pictures of a face and a house and they had to guess which was the right answer they weren't told what was what was the right answer they had to work it out by trial and error by pressing one of two buttons face or house and every time they got it right six times in a row because once they'd got it right they knew which was the right answer they got they were then allowed to guess six times in a row and then the computer muddled them up again forcing them to relearn which was the right answer again now what this was designed to do was to put the brain under a bit of stress so that it was forcing you to be flexible in your thinking and by comparing the brain scans of all of the groups what they found was that the people who had obsessive compulsive disorder showed a very dramatic reduction in how active a part of the brain called the lateral orbitofrontal cortex that's a bit of the brain right at the front behind your eyes was and it wasn't just the ocd patients the patients who had the disorder it was also their nearest relatives who had this too and what this is showing you is that there's a brain area which is associated with causing this particular set of symptoms and that rather than being a side effect of having the disease it may actually be involved in provoking the disease that's why the relatives showed this as well as the patients it's just that the relatives hadn't developed the condition yet or 
or been in a situation that would provoke them to develop the condition. And what Sam Chamberlain says is that this could lead to novel ways of diagnosing the condition much sooner. It could also lead to, to ways for testing drugs that might enable us to work out what's the best way to treat this condition and at what stage. So very encouraging because it is common and it is very distressing for people who suffer from it. Definitely, yes. So is the next stage to look at the genes that code for that part of the brain and see if there is something that's being passed down? Exactly right. So we know that there are some genes which are associated with this condition, but now it's a question of asking, well, how do they impact on this bit of the brain and how do they impact on the families of people so that we can begin to match up gene function with brain function and then also how drugs influence that mix? Very good, very promising stuff. And also in the news this week, how scientists from Queen's University in Belfast are electronically tagging jellyfish. Now, presumably not just jellyfish with an ASBO, but electronically tagging any jellyfish they can catch uh, to help with studying turtles. Now, joining us on the line now is John Houghton. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. If you're studying turtles, why is it that you're tagging jellyfish? Um, Well, leatherback turtles are the ones that eat jellyfish and... They, they cause a bit of a problem for us because they're not like a typical migratory species that moves from one spot to another. They just fan out through the entire ocean. And so we, for a long time, haven't actually known where they were feeding or what they were feeding on. And a couple of years we did big aerial surveys of the whole Irish Sea. And what we found was not what we thought we were going to find. We thought the jellyfish would just be randomly everywhere. What we found was in like four or five main bays you get these hundreds of thousands of giant jellyfish that are there year after year after year. And when we modelled the distribution of leatherback turtles, we actually find out that they tied up in the same place. That wouldn't be very exciting if you work on land, but when you work on an animal that lives beneath the sea and you can have a blooming find it, actually just a simple thing of tying predator and prey was very good. Okay, excellent. Now, how do these electronic tags work? I'm guessing these are not the things that report that you're not in your home when you should be. No, I mean, I'm not a million miles away from it. I mean, they're, they're data storage tags, and so they're, they're tiny anyway. They're about the size of your little finger. And uh, the ones we're going to do this year are quite simple. They just record depth and temperature and light levels. And so we just put it onto a jellyfish. It records all the information, and then eventually we retrieve the tag. Now, I've seen plenty of jellyfish washed up on the beach. They're very squidgy, sort of fluidy things. How on earth do you attach an electronic tag onto something that's so amorphous and blobby? That's true. I mean, but there's jellyfish and there's jellyfish, you see, and I think the ones you're describing would, would be called aurelia. They're, they're the common jellyfish, and they're tiny, and they are floppy and wobbly, and, and they would be almost impossible to tag. The ones we're going after are called barrel jellyfish, and they're, they're massive. I mean, they're nearly a metre across and weigh 27, 28 kilos. Wow. So, and they are actually quite big, tough animals. They're very strong swimmers. They can swim against the current. And so you actually, again, if you think of a jellyfish looking like a mushroom, you've got the stalk part coming out underneath what we call the bell. Quite simply, all you do is you just tie the cable tie, um, sorry, you tie a little time depth recorder to a plastic cable tie, swim up to the jellyfish, tie it around, and it takes about 10 seconds. And so does this affect their behaviour? I mean, they must, they must not like having something stuck around their, their body. I mean, they're very simple animals. I mean, they do react, that's true. I mean, we did trials off the west of Ireland last year, and not surprisingly, when you attach a tater jellyfish, it just swims straight to the seabed and tries to get away from you. But what we found that after, say, an hour or so, then it all just moves back up into the water and gets on with doing its jellyfish business. So as long as you, can't, you know, get past those first few hours and you ignore those then it's fine and you're talking about a device that is 
I don't know, 0.1% of the whole animal's body weight. So it doesn't really affect it that much. So how long are they going to keep these tags on? When, when are you expecting to get this data back? That we don't know the answer to. I mean, the particular jellyfish we're going after, they're unusual. Most jellyfish that will boom and bust in a couple of months in the summer. These guys seem to be around all year. So we're going to put the tags on probably in August and sure they could be turning up any time within, say, two months to maybe even a year down the line. So, yeah, any time over the next year. And how do you actually collect this data? Do you, does it just float up from where the jellyfish were? Yeah, what we've got attached to the time depth record, a little dive computer, is just a tiny fishing float. And on the fishing float, it's just a little label with a reward on it. So once the jellyfish dies, the whole device just att- uh, sort of disattaches itself from the jelly, floats to the surface, and we're putting them on in like big bays where we know they will wash ashore. So if you find one on the beach, just pick up the reward label and give us a call. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, John. That was John Houghton from Queen's University in Belfast explaining how tagging a jellyfish can actually teach us quite a lot about marine life. Thank you very much, Ben. This is The Naked Scientist. We're talking this week about the science of drug discovery, and if you'd like to join in with that, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Ben Valslow. Now, one of the things we also do with The Naked Scientists is we beam it live into Second Life on the internet. Now, confusingly enough, this is at 10 o'clock in the morning, Second Life time, but that's 6 o'clock in the evening, UK time. So if you want to join in with our crowd in Second Life, hello to all of you, uh, then you go to Silands, that's the Silands, S-C-I-L-A-N-D-S, Silands continent, in Second Life, find The Naked Scientist mansion and you can listen to the show. It'll be streamed out for you. And also, don't forget, you can take part in other discussions we have online on our forum nakedscientist.com forward slash forum so if you have a question you'd like us to solve for you and there's not time to get it onto the program our forum can help you sometimes as well in fact we ourselves go on to answer questions and get involved in the discussions on the forum but while you're online why not tell us how you think we could make our show even better we want to hear from you about what you like or dislike about the show so we've actually set up a survey at thenakedscientist.com slash survey your opinions are really important to us yeah because uh at the end of the day, um, there's no point in us doing this if we're not doing it very well. So please come and tell us. Now, as we do every week, it's time to get experimental now and do a bit of kitchen science. And earlier on in the week, Dave Ansell and Ben went down to meet some Cub Scouts to explore the interesting science of bubbles. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. Today we're with 14th Cambridge Cub Scouts and I'm with Alex. Hello. And I'm also with Max. Hi, Max. Hello. And of course, I'm with Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Ben. What have we got lined up today? Do an interesting experiment with bubbles. With bubbles, OK. Now, I've done lots of bubble blowing before. What are we doing this time? What do we need to do? Well, we need to mix up some bubble mixture and we need to make a frame. Now, the frame is slightly complicated, but it should be all right. What you want to end up with is a circle with two bits of wool down the middle of it. So we've got a coat hanger which has been bent into a rough circle at one end. You also want to wrap the outside of this circle with wool just so as it will hold the bubble mixture better and the bubble will last longer. And so, Alex, if you could wrap that with wool, that would be ideal. How are you doing, Alex? Mm, good. Are you getting there? Has it nearly got wool all the way round? Yep. <laughs> and while he's doing that, Max can mix up some bubble mixture. So if you want to pour some water into the tray... OK, Max is pouring quite a lot of water into the tray. Is that enough, Dave? Yep, that would be plenty. It just needs to be enough to cover the loop at the end of your frame. OK, Max... Now pour lots and lots of washing up liquid in, stupid amounts like you always wanted to do at home. That. 
That looks wonderful. You put about a tablespoon in there or maybe two. And that's probably enough now, Max. You're enjoying that far too much. How did that feel, Max? Nice. <laughs> Alex seems to have got the boring job here, wrapping wool round, uh, round a bit of wire. So what's next for Alex to do? Now, once Alex has worked his way all the way around the frame, I wanted to get two pieces of wool and take them from one corner of the frame to the opposite corner and tie them off. So you've got two pieces of wool loosely dangling across the middle of the frame from two semicircles, one on each side of the wool. So we take the wire circle that we've already made. So, Alex, now that it's finished, how does it look? Uh, it's sort of like a fish's head with two lines of blue wool down the middle of it. OK, Dave, so we have this very artistic but not particularly scientific-looking bit of wire now. What's the next thing to do? Well, first, Max has to mix all of the washing-out liquid into the water so you get a good mixture. Do you think Alex can help as well? I expect so. Try not to make too much mess. Oh, well. <laughs> How's it going, the lads? Is it nearly mixed up? Yeah. I noticed that as soon as they had the chance, they made a little ring with their fingers and blew a bubble through it. Have they beaten you to the experiment? Not quite, although that is a very interesting experiment in itself. <laughs> what I want you to do at home is to get your frame you've made, put it into the mixture get a nice bubble film across all of it. The bubble film should be split into three sections, one between the wool and one each side of the two pieces of wool. And then try and pop the film in between the middle of the two pieces of wool. So we need to put it into our bubble mixture, and that'll get a nice film all over the ring that we've just created with wool on it. And we should see that the bubble forms in three sections. We want you to try this out at home. First, the bit that's directly in between those two bits of wool. Give it a go, let us know what happens, and we'll come back to you later on in the show. Now, it really is worth having a go at this because it's really quite surprising what you see. And uh, if you can keep your bubbles alive for long enough, then you'll get a really good effect and you'll be very grateful that you did it. So Ben and Dave will be back with the answer later in the show, but it is worth seeing. So if you do want to have a go, just make a loop with some wire and coil some wool all the way around the loop. Now, that doesn't have to be really tight around it, just a few bits to help the bubble mixture stick to the wire. Then you just throw a couple of strands of loose wool across the loop, dip it in the bubble mixture and pop the bubble between the strands. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, just want to say hi or you have a question for the show, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, coming up on this week's Naked Scientist, when we'll be exploring the science of drug discovery, we have Dr Melanie McCulloch and also Dr Haran Jotti will be joining us, and they're looking at different ways of finding brand new drugs, which will be the treatments and hopefully also the cures, not just of today but also of tomorrow. So if you've got any questions for them, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, talking of emails, got quite a few of them coming this week. Uh, James Hodson uh, from Australia says, Fantastic show. I love podcasting it down here in Australia, and I also listen to Dr Carl Krushelnitsky's show on Triple J. That's on the ABC, that's the Australian equivalent of the BBC uh, and Dr Carl occasionally comes on this show too, so I guess that's why he's heard it We've also had this lovely email from Christine Olsen in Los Angeles I wish I was in Los Angeles, she says Dear Naked Scientists, I just wanted to say how great your show is and how much I look forward to it. You guys rock <laughs> even though some people think it's a bit nerdy for me to listen to a science podcast, I disagree and ignore what they say, there's nothing nerdy about listening to the Naked Scientist. Everyone is always impressed with the fascinating new studies that I can talk about. For example, the 
mind-controlled caterpillar. How crazy. She wants us to keep up the good work. Thanks ever so much, Christine. And also the guys in Second Life uh, are saying hello to us as well. We're watching you guys, so you watch your behaviour in Second Life. Ben, question here from Jeremiah. He says, how does coconut milk get inside the coconut in the first place? Well, there's an issue here because coconut milk is actually slightly different to coconut water, and it's coconut water that you find inside a coconut. Now, that's not water that's got in from the outside. It's created by the coconut itself. It's actually what we call the endosperm of the coconut plant, and that's the stuff that feeds, that gives the nutrition for the developing seed, a bit like the flesh of a banana or something like that. And actually, as the fruit ripens, the water in there, the coconut water, gets converted into the the solid fruit that you find in there. So if you have an unripe coconut, the water will be quite sweet and very nice, and the riper it gets, the less pleasantly oh, gets Oh, because I drink. thought it was the other way around. So in other words, it gets taken up and lost, turned into the solid stuff, and it gets less sweet as time goes on. Yes, all the sugar and the nutrients that are in the water is used for developing the fruit, so that the actual hard bit, and so it gets less pleasant the longer it goes on. Got an uh, email from uh, Rolly Mandelbro who says, uh, are there any other mental or psychiatric conditions that are known to be hereditary? The answer is yes, an enormous number of them. Schizophrenia, we know that the risk rises uh, very much so if you have a first degree or near relative with the condition, and also bipolar disorder. They're two very common conditions. They affect between 1% and 2% of the population, in fact, and they are very strongly genetically linked. And scientists are now beginning to apply the power of molecular biology to try to find out what the genes are that are linked to those conditions. They're using some Something called single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP analysis. What this involves is that you take a big group of people who have the disorder, you take a group of people who don't have the disorder, and then you look across their DNA for these little molecular markers called SNPs to see if they crop up more often in certain places in the genome in people who have a condition than people who don't. And that gives you a kind of flag sign or a way marker to say this bit of the DNA might be important in this condition, and then you can focus your attention much more carefully on that area. The same analysis has proved that there are various other genes which, in addition to the ones we knew about, are linked to things like genetics for breast cancer and diabetes in the last 12 months. So I think we'll probably see quite a lot of fruit being borne out by that procedure quite soon. Excellent. We've also had an email from Neil Pariser, and uh, he said that he got a brand new iPod at the store. It's never been charged, and it's never had any data put on it. So will it weigh the same after charging the battery and filling it with music and pictures and that sort of thing? Well, it will, Ben, if you fill it with heavy metal. Ah, Sorry, (laughs) I can't resist that. Um, The answer's no. Um, The way in which an iPod works is it's using... um, It depends on which iPod you got. If you've got the one which is solid-state memory, then all this is doing is binary data. So it's just a memory chip which is storing information as digital information. If you've got the older, bigger iPods that have hard disks in them, this is magnetic binary data. In each case, it's either storing a 1 or a 0 by having something pointing in one direction, a piece of magnetism pointing one way or the other, effectively. You can think about it like that. So that doesn't actually matter whether it's actually got anything stored on it or not, because storing nothing still weighs the same as storing something. It's not like a cupboard that you're putting tins into. And uh, on our forum, Medidas Scientia put this very well when they said it's a bit like having a handful of coins and they're either heads or tails. That's like the naught or one in digital binary. And they weigh the same whether they're all showing heads or all showing tails. So there's no reason to think that there should be a difference in, in the actual weight. But when you charge the battery, aren't you adding energy? And don't we know that there's a relationship between energy and mass? There is, because as Einstein said, E equals MC squared. So in fact, when you boil your kettle, or when this is the best explanation, the best excuse for not doing PE at school, when you run, for example, in both cases, the hot kettle or you running 
both have more energy because when you're running fast you have more kinetic energy and because E equals mc squared that's E energy equals m mass times the speed of light c squared well since the speed of light squared doesn't change if your E energy goes up your mass must go up so the hot kettle will weigh more and when you run at PE you will gain something like 10 to the minus 14 grams uh, so this is not a prodigious weight gain but it is nonetheless weight gain due to taking exercise so you could use this as an excuse for not doing exercise similarly in your iPod when you you charge it up you're putting some energy into the battery so it will weigh a rather tiny amount more in fact one statistic i did hear is that a thumbprint applied to the front of the ipod in the form of uh, say the grease on your thumb will weigh more than the weight of the battery is increasing but because of charging it fantastic stuff well i do hope everybody's ipods are already full of the naked scientists <laughs> that's available from our website which is thenakedscientists.com Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And still to come today, we'll be catching up with Diana O'Cal for Question of the Week. We'll be finding out if any organisms can truly live forever. Now, we talked about the fact that we're going to be discussing the science of drug discovery. And we reported a few months ago, actually, on The Naked Scientist from Edinburgh about drug-resistant tuberculosis appearing in the country. That's uh, extended drug-resistant XDR-TB. We're also well acquainted with superbugs like MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, and also other killers like malaria, and the fact that these things can all become resistant to drugs, and that means we have to find new ways to tackle them. Well, joining us in the studio this week is Dr. Haran Jotti, who is the founder of the drug discovery company Aztec Therapeutics. He set this up in 1999. He started off as the chief scientific officer and he's now the chief executive officer. So, Haran, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you with us on The Naked Scientist. What's the, the basic way in which, before you came along with your techniques, we were trying to invent new drugs? So the conventional approach to discover new drugs uh, really starts with initially finding a, uh, a target which may be associated with uh, a particular disease. And that target quite often is a protein which malfunctions in one way or another. Sometimes it's um, hyperactivated. Uh, the, the proteins function and what you then do is you take that protein um, and then you screen it against a, a collection of compounds basically these are libraries of chemical entities um, and quite often these libraries uh, are really rather huge so in the sense there could be hundreds of thousands of different compounds and the aim there is to identify some compounds which actually bind or interact with that target protein so those are called leads um, in the drug discovery terminology. And then after that, what happens is you try to optimize those leads by doing some iterative uh, chemistry, i.e. you try to improve the interaction of those compounds against that tra target protein. And you try to impart in those compounds uh, the drug-like properties one needs for that compound then to become uh, a drug. So in the, the real world, how long would it take between you coming up with, um, I don't know, a, a structure for something in the body you want to target? Say you find a, a gene which makes something linked to, say, high blood pressure, and you want to make a drug to lower blood pressure by blocking that gene. How long would it take if you invented a molecule between the invention of that molecule 
the conception in the laboratory and it actually going into a patient? What's the average time? You know, this process and this whole uh, procedure is a really very long time and it takes many years and it, it ranges between five to ten years often uh, to go from the concept um, to a drug which may get onto the marketplace and to treat patients. So that's why it requires a huge amount of investment uh, in this whole process. And so what's the average price tag for a, for a drug coming out today? The kind of uh, monies which it requires to develop a drug is in the order of $800 million. Oh, wow. So that number also does include a lot of the programs which actually fail to generate uh, the compound. Uh, so you, uh, so that's compounds. why pharmaceutical companies, when they make a drug, have to charge a lot for it. That's Certainly to the first world, in order to make their money back, to, to bankroll the development of other drugs that are not going to succeed. That's exactly right. The actual failure rate is really quite um, eye-watering, in fact, um, depending on where you look at the process, but the metrics are in, uh, they range in the order of one in a hundred or one in a thousand compounds actually get to uh, the marketplace. Why do most not make it? So the, the, that's a big question there, and a lot of people are trying to understand uh, how we can improve this productivity. And one thing which it is quite clear from looking at the types of chemistries which have been generated using this more conventional approach is that perhaps these molecules have become too molecularly complex and perhaps they're a little bit too large. And that what happens then in the body is that some of these compounds are actually metabolized in a negative way, which generates toxicities. And oh, right, side so you're effects. saying the actual drug itself that the company might make uh, ends up being far too big and ends up turning into other things in the body which can have harmful effects, and that's why the compound fails. That, that there is clear evidence which suggests that uh, uh, the attrition or the failure rate of compounds which are being developed in the clinical setting is correlated with the size of the molecule. So, Do you think it's not also correlated with the size of the legal bills that companies like Merck have been facing? Because when they come up with a drug and then they get sued for a billion dollars a few years later because of consequences uh, which came to light later, um, this is probably acting as a massive disincentive, isn't it? There, there is no question that these are broader societal uh, pressures on the industry. Um, and I think uh, in a very general way, I think society has perhaps become a little bit uh, overly risk-averse because there's no question every drug uh, will be uh, toxic to some degree depending on what dose. So the whole question here is all the challenges to give appropriate amounts of drug uh, to deal with the disease and not generate toxicity. So what's the approach you've been taking at Aztecs to, to do it differently and, and surmount some of these difficulties? So the, the, the key issue that we've been trying to target is to try to keep this, the eventual drug candidate, the drug molecule, uh, a slightly smaller, slightly less complex. So what we do is rather than screen these, uh, these compounds, which are quite often between uh, 300 to 500 Daltons in size, we actually screen much smaller chemistries uh, between 1 to 200 Daltons, and these are what we call fragments. And then what we're able to do is uh, add chemically uh, to those fragments to improve the interaction of those original fragments to the target protein. Still sounds like an enormous amount down. of work, though. I mean, how are you able to do this and do it more efficiently and more cost-effectively than other companies? Because if it was that easy, they'd be doing it. 
There's no question it is difficult, um, but what we've been doing is focusing on how you would optimize the technology to be able to firstly detect these very small fragments, which is a technical challenge in, in itself, but then to optimize. And what it uh, really boils down to is visualization of how these fragments bind. So we've developed biophysical techniques, X-ray crystallography, NMR, and integrated these suites into an approach which we call pyramid to allow us to do this fragment-based drug discovery. Okay, well talk us through the the pyramid bit by bit then, uh, exactly how you would go about with your technique making a new agent. So once we've identified the target protein, we then produce the three-dimensional structure of that protein by doing X-ray crystallography, and for that you have to to do a lot of protein expression uh, and biochemistry. So that gives you the shape, what the actual molecule looks like in the first place, and how does that help you? So the way that helps us is in two ways. Firstly, it tells us exactly where a fragment has been bound to that target and that allows us to actually then rationally optimise that fragment to fit better into that target protein. Oh, I see. So that gives you the business end of the drug, so you know which bit is doing the important job. That's right. And then what we could do really is what we are doing is handcrafting these molecules to um, very uniquely and uh, uh, directly fit into the pockets of the protein. Now, the other key advantage of this approach is that these fragments are very low affinity. They bind with very, very low interactions. And it turns out that biophysical techniques such as X-ray crystallography and NMR are really much better ways of detecting the original binding of the fragments. And then where do you go? What we then do is uh, do several cycles of optimization. We add extra functional groups onto these fragments and grow these fragments out, very much like a seed, like planting a seed and growing the seed. Um, And once we actually have molecules which have the appropriate profile in terms of the properties one requires for a drug candidate, these molecules are then tested in human beings. Of course, before you do that, you have to test them in uh, preclinical models. And just finally, once you've arrived at this molecule you want to make, how do you actually get it so that you can make it efficiently? Because if you end up with very complicated chemistry needing to make these very complicated but small molecules, how do you make them? So it it turns out actually the fragments are actually very simple, much more simple than the larger, more complex molecules which conventional screening or conventional drug discovery actually utilises. So in fact the chemistry is simpler and less chemically challenging than conventional drug discovery. Thank you very much. And just to finish off... Have you got any compounds that you've now made and which are out there in the clinic, or is this all experimental at this stage? No, no, we've put three compounds now into clinical trials. So our particular focus today is developing experimental cancer therapies, and uh, we have three compounds being tested in cancer patients, both in the US and in the UK. Thank you very much. That's Harun Jyoti. He's from Aztec Therapeutics. He's with us. If you'd like to ask him any questions about how you develop new drugs, how you make molecules, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, brought to you by thenakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Ben Valsler, waiting in the wings to find out what the longest-lived organism on the planet is. Is immortality possible? Is Diana O'Carroll? That's this week's question of the week, and it's coming up. But first of all, let's bring in Melanie McCulloch, and she's from Biotica Technology Limited, which is a spin-off company from the University of Cambridge. And at Biotica, they use an entirely different system than the one we've just heard about to try and find new drugs. And they take their chemical clues from things like soil bacteria. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you for joining us. What are you actually up to? Sounds intriguing. 
Yes, Biotica has a technology which I would say is quite the other end of the spectrum from Aztecs. Um, polyketides are a type of compound produced naturally in soil bacteria, and a lot of them are very naturally pharmaceutically active as well. What are they? Well, they're fairly large molecules. They're um, around 500 Daltons, and they um, are made up of a series of carboxylic acids which are joined together in the bacteria by an enzyme called polyketide synthase. And what do they do? Well, we're not completely sure necessarily what they do within the bacteria. <laughs> okay. um, we, we don't know why they produce them per se, but when we take them and we give them to humans, they interact with a really wide range of targets. So uh, some of the really famous examples, for example, rapamycin um, is an immunosuppressant and it's used um, in transplant patients to prevent, prevent them rejecting the organ that's been given. Now, there are also analogues of rapamycin, which are used in cancer, for example, and it's been tested in other, other indications as well. But they're more broadly applicable than that. Um, there are antibacterial polyketides, such as erythromycin. Some of the early anti-cholesterol statins were also polyketides, and they're also used um, in cancer. Some really novel cancer compounds that have been recently approved were also polyketide compounds. So, so what you're saying is bacteria have a pretty broad medicine chest at their disposal, and all we have to do is to work out how to get it out. Yes, that's right. So what are you doing to do that? Well, Biotica specialises in genetically engineering the bacteria so that we can change the properties of the polyketides that are naturally produced. One really good example is... Um, there's a polyketide called FK506, which is an immunosuppressant. It's used, again, in transplant patients. What we're doing is working on that molecule to change its pharmaceutical properties, make it appropriate for delivering, for example, by inhalation. We can then take advantage of the fact that it downregulates inflammation, downregulates the immune system, and give it to asthma patients. Now, the interesting thing about FK506 is that uh, when it's given systemically, it's, it's quite toxic and it has very variable metabolism. What we can do is we can change the metabolism of the drug to make it more appropriate to give in a, a, a bigger indication like asthma, really reduce the t toxicity of that molecule. But how do you know how to tweak the DNA of the bacteria so that they make a different molecule which is more human-friendly? <laughs> The polyketide synthase is a very interesting enzyme. So the genes directly translate to different modules within the polyketide synthase and each of those will recruit a carboxylic acid and then may change the acid as it's added onto the polyketide. By looking at the genome of the bacteria, we can actually identify how to change the individual modules within the polyketide synthase. For example, we can swap from one organism to another to recruit different acids into the polyketide molecule. And we can tell by looking at the structure and activity relationships of the molecules that, that we, we know, we can tell what changes we have to make to make changes in the, in the activity of the molecule within the human. Is anyone else doing this, or is this your kind of unique selling point? Biotica has patents on this technology, so we're um, the only company who's able to do certain parts of the technology. There are other companies who are doing similar things, perhaps with different types of molecules, um, and there was another company who has d had some kind of overlapping technology in the US, which has recently been bought by one of the very big pharmaceutical companies. So, the, I mean, the, the bottom line here is that this is, rather than taking a molecule and fiddling with it chemi chemically, you can actually take a molecule that the, the bacteria are already making, fiddle with the bacteria and make them make it better. We can get the bacteria to do the work for us. And the bacteria also produce the molecules commercially as well. So we can scale up 
we can ferment lots of bacteria and we can get that um, pharmaceuticals out really efficiently. Because bacteria don't charge a uh, salary and they don't get uh, bogged in <laughs> health and safety. That's why. <laughs> we've, uh, we've had an email on the theme of drug discovery from uh, Blake called Mario and he says, is it possible to create an intelligent vaccine or a drug that could evolve with the ever-changing strains of the disease? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not sure that you would actually want a vaccine to evolve too much, uh, just in case once you set it loose in the wild, you you would risk some kind of a vaccine epidemic. Um, But I think what you can definitely do is um, apply, for example, if we were looking at our bacteria, we could apply selection pressure to the bacteria to change the types of molecules that they produce, and that's a similar kind of concept. I I would think that um, probably... Uh, this is going to be a big business in the future because we're only just beginning to understand how molecules actually look and by sort of turning this round in this way so we can now start with what we want to end up with and then go back to the gene and tweak that. That's kind of quite a novel thing to be doing and, and probably going to be a major way of doing this in future. There are some real advances in technology at the moment that I think will enable us to expand greatly what we can do with genetically engineering the bacteria that produce these polyketides. Biotica is a very small company, but I think there's a, a really big area for us to build into with increasingly novel technologies as as things move on. Thank you very much. That's Melanie McCulloch. She's from Biotica Technology. And if you'd like to ask her any questions, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with me, Chris Smith. And now it's time to bring on Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. Hi, Diana. Hello. Well, this week we're going to be examining the most elderly of living things. And it's not Tina Turner. <laughs> Hi, it's Jeff Blackwell calling in from Bundaberg in Queensland in Australia for question of the week. I'd like to know if there are any life forms, plant, animal, fungus, whatever, that are effectively immortal. So what on this earth needs to start saving for its pension from its inception and which organisms need to crack open a bottle of blue rinse? Hello, my name is Dr John Nudge from University of Manchester and I'm Senior Lecturer in uh, Paleontology. And one of the longest living vertebrate animals, and many of the listeners will be aware of this, is the giant land tortoise. Now there's a nice story about Captain Cook, the explorer, presenting one of these animals to the Queen of Tonga in 1788. And this animal eventually died in 1966, 188 years later, and the animal was probably mature by the time he collected it. Now, if we turn our attention to the plant kingdom, we can multiply these figures by a factor of 10. There's a well-known example of the bristlecone pine trees, which grow in the Rocky Mountains of North America. And these are well known to live for over 4,000 years. I think the record's about 4,600 years. But again, these figures have recently been doubled by research in Sweden. Scientists here came across a Norway spruce whose root system had been growing for 9,550 years. If we now move on to some of the simpler life forms, then the numbers do start to get really big. In 1995, a sample of bacteria was found in the stomach of a bee which was encased in amber, which was dated at between 25 and 40 million years old. But these bacteria were found in a state of suspended animation, and they had to be reanimated in the laboratory. So in scientific terms, they were in what we call a cryptobiotic state. It means the cells remained alive, but none of the life processes were being carried out. They didn't feed or reproduce. So whether you consider this as immortality or not is open to question. So to answer the question, the sad fact is that all cells do decompose with time, all cells age, and all cells eventually die. So sadly, as yet, no life form has evolved that that is immortal. 
Sadly, no living things have yet unlocked the secret to eternal life, though some of them have discovered a sort of suspended animation. So if you fancy living a few hundred years, become a tortoise, or a thousand years, then why not become a tree? And on our forum at thenakedscientist.com slash forum, Aatrox and RD were discussing whether or not organisms which produce asexually could technically live forever, as they pass the same DNA on from one generation to the next. So, Diana, what question have you got for us next week? Well, next week's question will be taking another look into longevity with the ultimate in water recycling. My name is Sky. I'm an archaeologist in Arkansas in America, and I was taught when I was young that we drink the same water today that the dinosaurs drank when they were alive, and I wondered if that was true. And the following week, here's something else you can use over and over again. It's your brain. Hello, my name is Sean, and I'm from Edinburgh. I would like to know... How much information can my brain take before I start overwriting stuff that's already there? Is all this learning good for me, or should I concentrate on life? I have asked this question, and nobody can give me an answer. So if you know if it's the same water cycling through our systems, or how many gigabytes of brain space we really have, then let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or join the debate on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Do you reckon no one could remember to answer the question because they'd all forgotten what the question was by the time you finished answering it? Because their brain's so full. (laughs) It's amazing how much information I reckon I can cram into my brain. But I wonder, are you actually going to tell us how much we can theoretically pack in there? Um, It's quite an interesting answer, actually. Um, I'll have to wait and see. Okay. well, if you want to join in with that discussion or you have a theory of your own, as Diana says, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum has got a question of the week thread there, which enables you to post your thoughts and theories and additional sort of contributions, which we will insert into the programme. So you've got two weeks to think about that one if you'd like to have a go at it. Thanks very much, Diana O'Carroll. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks... The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with me, Ben Velsler. And now let's go back to the kitchen now to see what Ben and Dave were able to do in terms of controlling those cubs and whether they managed to finish off this week's experiment, which was making a ring, a bit of wire, put some string down the middle, two strings, so you have two bits of the wire on either side of the string and a central portion, and you pop the bubble in the middle. What happens? Let's find out. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still with 14th Cambridge Cub Scouts, and we're still with Alex and Max. And we have made, out of a wire coat hanger, a bubble loop. Now, what we're doing with this is we've wrapped it with wool and put two loose strands of wool across the middle and dipped it into some bubble mixture. And now that we've lifted it out, we can see that the bubble is sort of formed in several different sections. What we wanted you to try at home was to see if you could burst the thin bit of bubble in between the two dangling bits of wool. Now, Alex, you've currently got your bubble film there. You're trying to burst it. Are you having any luck? Uh, Yeah, sort of. I think your fingers might be too wet and it just won't burst for you. Uh, Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Well, Dave has dry fingers, so Dave, would you mind doing the honours? Alex, let us know what happens. And, ooh, the two pieces of wool have just separated and now the two outer bits of bubble have just got smaller and now they've just burst. (laughs) Well, eventually all the bubbles burst there, Dave. But as soon as you pop the middle bit, it made almost an eye shape. The two loose bits of wool got pulled towards the edge by the remaining bubble. What was happening there? Water has a property called surface tension. This is because the water molecules like being next to other water molecules but not next to the air. So the water tries to get as small as possible. 
Now, when you add soap to it, that makes the surface tension much weaker, but there's still some surface tension there. So the soap film tries to become as small as possible. It will pull on things to try and make itself smaller. This is why bubbles are spheres, because for a certain amount of air trapped inside a bubble, the smallest the surface can be is a sphere or a bubble shape. So when we've got our bubble film here, it's actually pulling on the bits of wool in all different directions, and so it still seems to be loose. Yeah, because there's a bubble film on both sides of the bits of wool, they're being pulled in both directions, so there's no overall force on the bits of wool. And that's why they still hang down. Yeah, that's right. But if you pop the film in the middle, they're only getting pulled on the outside, so the two pieces of wool are pulled to the outside as far as they'll go. So it's the surface tension that pulls the two loose bits of wool tight out towards the edges, and it makes that distinctive oval eye shape. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Well, what did you think of that kitchen science experiment, Alex? It was very strange, but it was rather amazing. I mean, we were really not expecting that to happen. And what did you think, Max? I thought when it was going to pop, the whole thing was going to pop. (laughs) So were you surprised to see it make that eye shape in the middle? Yeah. Do you think you'll show people at home now? Yeah. An excuse to play with bubbles, eh, Max? Yeah. And I will show how to make a bubble with your fingers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, clearly we have a budding naked scientist here, but that's all for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. Thank you very much to Ben and Dave. What a fantastic Kitchen Science. So, in other words, it's the surface tension that pulls the loose strands of wool out towards the edges, and that makes that distinctive elliptical hole in the middle. Now, Kitchen Science will be back next week. It's not going to be from a scout hut or even from a kitchen, but it's actually going to be from a car park. Uh, (laughs) We don't recommend that you experiment on motorways, however, and we will show you something that's very interesting about helium balloons when you're transporting them, though. And if you want to find out more about kitchen science, there's up acres and acres of experiments, all with explanations and pictures on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And I can guarantee you they are all a great deal of fun to do. But, uh, Harren, we've had uh, a question in from Andrew in Cambridge who said that you mentioned earlier um, that we measured things in Daltons and he doesn't want to appear ignorant, but what actually is a Dalton? Right, yeah. So basically a Dalton is just a measure of weight, it's a measure of mass. Um, it's, you know, it's a very, very small measure um, of mass, something like micrograms or grams people refer to, but uh, at a kind of microscopic level, if you like. Uh, Daltons are basically very, very single units of small small mass, basically. So, so when you're down at the molecular level, you, you can't use grams? Or, or, or even thousands of grams, you need to use a much smaller molecular unit. That's exactly right, and that's basically the only, uh, the, the, the most commonly known um, unit which most people refer to when looking at small molecules. We've had a question from Pookie, Amsterdam, who says um, there are different sorts of body types. Different people react differently to different drugs. So, so would you say that there are different body types in the population and therefore should we be looking for them? Um, yes, I think um, this is a very interesting question and um, it really touches on, uh, I think, what's happening in, in a broader sense in the pharmaceutical industry in that people are really talking about personalised medicine. Um, so this issue about body types or different types of people, um, often due to their different genotype or genetic makeup, um, is going to be very interesting to see how uh, drugs actually are uh, metabolised, for example, by different types of people uh, and whether those drugs show different levels of uh, efficacy in different types of people. And there's a huge push in the industry now to try to see whether we can't uh, try to predict up front from, by reading a genotype of a particular person whether that person A is going to 
respond to the particular treatment and B, whether they're going to have a higher chance of having uh, detrimental side effects due to some toxicities. So there's a, there's a big push in this whole personalised medicine space and I think body types and uh, genome uh, sequencing is, is all part of the same issue. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you go into a shoe shop, you expect to get a pair of shoes that's the right size for you. But you go into a chemist and you're given a drug which millions of other people take and it's expected to fit your molecules in your body just perfectly even though you might be totally different from the next person yeah i mean that's that's a reality today and largely this is because we simply haven't had the technologies to be able to um, uh, segregate people into these different groups um, because of course uh, genome sequencing is a, a very recent uh, uh, a development and many of these drugs are actually discovered and developed um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So I think going forward molecularly targeted agents which try to target subgroups of patients um, is, is going to be very much the focus of the industry. Thank you, Harren. Uh, Melanie, we've got a question here from, from Rolly who says um, how do you train antibodies to attack skin cancer? Because there was an item on the news about that recently. Well, monoclonal antibodies are a very interesting new way of, of treating cancer and um, one of the really clever things about them is that they target specific receptors on the surface of the cancer. Now, what we know about antibodies is that their structure is like a lock and key, so they fit very closely onto the receptor and they're very specific to where they take the activity of the, of the antibody. In melanoma, um, which is a particularly serious form of cancer, as we know, with some really quite poor outcomes, uh, there's some really great work going on at the moment in looking at ma making the antibodies target those receptors much, much more specifically and much more clearly to the, to the cancer itself. So do you see this as being a sort of massive growth area now that we're going we're to see people getting better at doing this in future? I think it's really important and there's a lot of companies working on how to develop new forms of antibodies with a greater specificity for cancer but also with different types of activities and even ones that can carry other cancer therapeutics directly to the site of the tumour which is very interesting. It's very important too, since one person in every three will ultimately in their lifetime die of cancer. I have to say a very, very big thank you to Melanie McCulloch, who you heard there from Biotech Technology, and Haran Jossi from Aztec Therapeutics, who are our guests this week. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you also to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, who also helped co-present this week's show, Dave Ansell, Diana O'Carroll, and in our production hot seat this week, it is Petro Minch. Next week's our science Q&A show, where you just send in your questions, chris at nakedscientist.com, and we will attempt to try and answer them. That's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week, and see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.